Greetings, fellow travelers. Welcome to another episode of How Travel Will Travel, the podcast of the NUI Galway Archaeology Society. Hello and welcome back, everyone. I am here with Paige Madison from... Are you... you According to your the bio that I have here, <clears throat> you're based in Arizona State University, but you are calling from the East Coast. Yeah, yeah, the pandemic has sort of upended my physical location, but honestly, <laughs> that's been up- upended for many years. I am based out of Arizona State. I show up a couple times a year to check in, but um, most of my research happens elsewhere. So I've been, you know, away from Arizona for a while. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Uh, so why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you research? Yeah, so, um, so yeah, great to be here. I'm really excited about this. Um, Galway is one of my favorite places in the world, and uh, I've had great experiences with this program before, so thanks for having me. But yeah, I'm a PhD candidate. I'm actually trying to finish up very soon, um, potentially in the next couple months, but definitely by the spring. Ooh, and what I... I know, thank you. <laughs> it's a little hectic, um, but uh, but it's good. I've been at this for a while, and so what I study is the history of science. Is technically my degree, but I'm interested in the history of paleoanthropology. So it's very common that historians of science specialize in one type of science, the history of physics, or you know what have you. And my passion has always been paleoanthropology. So I actually did a biological anthropology undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I finished that in 2012 at Montana State and then entered Arizona State to do a combined master's and PhD on this project. And what's been great about Arizona State in general and the programs that I'm part of there is that they're really open to interdisciplinary work. So um, there are different ways of doing the history of science and the way I'm interested in doing it is doing it as close to the scientists as possible and speaking to them about what I'm doing, right? So I'm not interested necessarily in writing a history of their discipline from far away, you know, this bird's eye view that maybe is only interesting to historians or something like that. I'm hoping to draw out sort of lessons about, um, you know, how we've come to know what we know, what we can learn from that and adjust moving forward and, you know, and then all the sort of interesting facets of the history. Um, So that means that I'm in two departments. I work with the Center for Biology and Society, and then I'm also part of the Institute of Human Origins. So I spend a lot of time about around scientists at dig sites and things like this and um, do a lot of interviews with them and try to sort of speak to both, both disciplines. Okay, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. That's kind of uh, one thing that, that caught my eye when I was just, you know, I was looking at people to, to try to contact to talk to for our little lecture series. And I'd actually, I first found you through an article that you wrote for Sapiens. Um, that's how I found a couple of people because there's all sorts of, I have a, a lot of tabs open at the moment of just <laughs> different articles. I'm like, I'm like Ooh, yeah. I'll read that later. I'll read that later. Um, but I'd found, I'd found you through that and some of your work that you've done on paleoanthropology just, uh, seemed interesting. Cause I think, as I said in my email, we, we don't really have that in Ireland as far as I can tell. Um, what exactly is paleoanthropology? Yeah, so it's a multifaceted discipline. I'm actually struggling struggling with it right now because I'm writing the introduction to my dissertation and I have to <laughs> define it. And it turns yeah. out it's a very difficult thing to define, especially if you talk in historical terms because it's changed mm-hmm. over time. But essentially, you know, really old anthropology, right? We're interested 
in this period of really early human evolution, maybe even like a pre-sapiens type of thing, but I mean, even homo sapiens might fall under that. But we're really interested in the earliest stages of after we split off from our closest living relatives like chimpanzees and gorillas and sort of the fossil record makes that has happened since then is really the main focus. However, what's amazing about paleoanthropology is it's not just the fossil record, right? So especially at the Institute of Human Origins, we have people that focus on the fossil record, but we also have people that focus on the archeological record that look at stone tools, or, you know, we have primatologists that look at chimpanzee behavior to learn something about maybe hominin evolution and behavior. And, um, and so you have sort of all these different types of lines of evidence that can lead back to that question of sort of how we became human and how that all has unfolded in the last maybe seven million years or so. So it's really fascinating. Again, I personally focus on the fossil hominins. Yeah. Um, I think they're amazing. I think these, you know, these actual material evidence of our potential ancestors or close relatives are really um, are really an amazing thing that we have and that we're sort of searching for all over the world. Um, but, um, but there are really a lot of ways to get at it, um, though I would say that probably those fossil hominins really make up the majority. Um, so yeah, that's cool. And uh, I, sh I have to say too, I, I love working with sapiens. I've written for sapiens for a few years now, uh, quite a few years. Uh, more than I'd probably care to think about. I've done <laughs> articles on and off for them, but they're really an amazing organization and Chip Caldwell has done really fun stuff. Uh, I've done some podcasts with them and stuff like that. So they're always sort of open to me talking about what it is I'm doing, which as yeah. you can see in the conversation is sometimes a little bit unconventional, right? I'm sometimes sitting yeah. at dig sites with the scientists, but not actually sciencing with them as much. And so um, Sapiens really has always let me like play with that. So that's really been a a fun one. Yeah, I don't know if no, you the that, rat stew one. Is that the one? Sorry, say that again. Was it the rat stew article that you? Caught? I have I have that one up too. Actually, I was going to mention that because okay. um, I first I first saw the one that you wrote about who first buried the dead. And, okay. Yeah, which which I thought was fascinating because I just I really am interested by funerary traditions and you know what kind of goes into burying people and it's it's one thing that's you know, everybody thinks that that's a very human thing to do. Um, so that was an interesting article, but I did also read the one about the rat stew, which I thought was just the coolest. <laughs> it's so, so unconventional. You know, you're just sitting there and you're eating rat stew to try to help get some information about uh, the diet of the, um, I had it written down, homo, Florensiensis. <laughs> yeah, Florensiensis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one's a fun rat. Don't forget, or fun one. And don't forget, like these are giant rats. Like yeah. without the tail. Like these are you've never seen anything like it. I know. I went and I looked looked up pictures of these oh, cool. of these rats. Yeah. So just for um for the viewers' sake, there's this uh, there's an article that you can find on Sapiens called "How Eating Rat Stew Serves Hobbit Research." That Paige here wrote. Um, about eating some rat stew to try to help uh, get some more insight into some of the dietary habits of, uh, oh my gosh, Homo florensis. <laughs> yeah, florensis. Yeah, florensis. Yeah. Oh gosh, it can. I, I struggle with some of that sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, but the you know, it's talking about making stew from florus giant rats, which I went and I looked looked up a picture of. And uh, they're massive. 
<laughs> yeah, they're, really, they're really big. And again, yeah, that article exists if anyone's interested uh, in reading about it, but just for some background, if anyone's interested. Um, so that's sort of the main project that I've been working on in the last maybe three years or so. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the final section of my dissertation. My dissertation has three different parts. I okay. look at Neanderthals, and then I look at, and then I totally shift gears, and I look at some early Australopiths from South Africa, mm -hmm. some of the first real evidence that maybe hominins evolved there. And then I shift gears again and move to Asia and some of the discoveries that have been made there very recently. I mean, in my historian time period recently, in the last 20 years or so, 15 years. And so, um, so that's sort of my final project. So it's been the final stage of my PhD and it's been sort of my focus for the last few years. And that one, um, that was an amazing find that this team made back in 2003. And that was a really unexpected human relative. Um, some of us that are a little bit older uh, in the paleoanthropology world might remember when the news broke. It was, it was really kind of exciting. It was, it was an unexpected place. The dates that it was thought to be alive were really unexpected. But one of the things that was cool about it is that it was this tiny little creature standing over only like a meter tall, but maybe seems to have made stone tools and done, again, some really interesting human things. But they lived on this totally oceanic island, which is the island of Flores in Indonesia. And they, again, they lived with all these other creatures that were also equally strange. So giant rats are one of those. And then there's also like pygmy elephants that we call stegodons um, that were like the size of cows. And there are just a lot of creatures that like aren't what you would expect and aren't the sizes you would expect. And I should also say, if you're familiar with Komodo dragons, that's where they're from as well. We have their okay. remains in the cave where we dig. Um, they don't live around the cave anymore. Now they're sort of relegated to the coasts where food's yeah. a little bit more. But back when these poor meter tall hominins were running around, there were Komodo dragons and they were Oh my gosh, boring. I can yeah. just imagine. It being one of these, um, one of these guys, and the Komodo dragons probably seem like actual dragons <laughs> to yeah. us. That would be yeah. terrifying. Yeah, I can't imagine. I wrote a blog post that I hope to turn into maybe a sapiens piece or something a number of years ago about the first time. So I, I joined the excavations there. I've been doing that for about three years because um, this team is still digging there. There have been digs there on and off since the 1960s. It's amazing. It's an amazing cave. Um, there's so much more to be discovered there. Um, but the team goes back every year when it's not a pandemic year, otherwise yeah. I'd be here right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so they were still digging and I joined them and that's when I do things like eat rat stew with our local excavators. Um, and uh, where was I going with that? I totally lost it. Oh, um, okay, I got it. So we, we usually drive up to the cave. We stay in a town nearby and we drive up every day in the morning and spend all day there digging away, doing all the things scientists do, and then leave at the end of the day. But every now and then we'll stay late into the night to collect some geological samples and things like this yep. that need to be done in darkness. Um, and uh, the first night that I ever spent there, I was only there until probably one in the morning or something. So I didn't sleep there by any means, although I was thinking about it. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, those were long days. But um, I, all I could do was sit there in the darkness and think about what it must have felt like for these tiny hominins with Komodo dragons. And the rats do come out at night. They're not out during the day. Yeah. Um, they're really scared of us now. But they were much more prolific back then. And um, 
you know, they would have been coming out looking for food, and I can't imagine what it would have been like <laughs> to oh be gosh. one of these creatures. Yeah, it almost, it almost kind of sounds like some description of an entirely different planet, almost, just with all these different strange, strange creatures, especially to, like, especially from a, a Western perspective, where, you know, we, we'll see, we're more familiar with rats that are so much smaller, and we, you know, depending on how close you live to the country, if you've been in the city your whole life, you may have never even seen a cow in person. <laughs> right. right, yeah, no, that's absolutely the case. The Western perspective, of course, is really important. I remember the first time I landed on the island, you know, that was about as foreign as anything I had ever seen in my life. Everything from the, the types of limestone caves and mm -hmm. the, the culture and the rats and everything. But of course to them it's normal. But I, but I will say within Indonesia, you also get exactly what you just said, which is if you don't live near the country, this is equally shocking, right? So we yeah. actually, we, live, we stay in a town maybe a 45 minute drive from the cave, uh -huh. but it is very different. So like the villages around the cave, mostly don't have power and you know, like they're absolutely wonderful, beautiful places, but they, you know, they might still hunt those rats occasionally, um, which is why I was eating them on that day. Yeah. Uh, you know, their lifestyle looks very different than the almost city-like atmosphere that we're sort of living in at 40 minutes mm. away. And if we are to like talk to the people in the city only 40 minutes away about these rats, they can't believe it. <laughs> and let alone if you go back to Java, which is, you know, it's over a thousand miles uh, west of this, of this very remote island um, in comparison to Java, which is just bustling and full of cities. And if you were to talk to them about it, I mean, they might not even believe you, right? So it's kind of, you do get that within Indonesia as well. Like, yeah. what? Those? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I can, I can see that. <laughs> But it really speaks to how unique this island is. Yeah. Uh, so it's really, it's one of full of mystery for sure. Yeah. Wow. It is, it's really, really interesting. Like I said, I've been kind of looking through and I was looking up pictures of, you know, the giant rat and then some re reconstructions of um, these, these hobbit people. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's really, really cool. And just such, I've always been interested in the study of, um, you know, other hominids, because it's just, it's so fascinating to me how different the lines of evolution have gone to that, you know, here we are today as modern humans, um, you know, and how we managed to survive to this point and evolve to this point where all of our other distant cousins went off in such different directions and then, you know, for one reason or another eventually died off or got absorbed by another hominid group. Yeah, yeah, and exactly that is why I think The Hobbit today is so fascinating, right? Sort mm -hmm. of some of the major controversies that existed around it when it was first announced in 2004, some of those have kind of died out. So then you might be able to ask yourself like, okay, like what are we still interested in when we're still digging there and we're still examining these remains? And that's exactly what I think we're looking at. Like a few of us, that's what's keeping us going for sure, is that here's this almost like comparative example of a creature that lived into definitely the fairly recent past. Again, if we're talking about 7 million years of human evolution, we think mm -hmm. that the hobbits went extinct maybe about 50,000 years ago. So, I mean, modern humans were running all around yeah. in the area even 
um, fully modern, essentially, at least anatomically. And here are these other creatures that have, yeah, taken this different path, but they're, they seem to be making it work. Um, and they're also making stone tools, we think, and doing all these crazy things. And so, yeah, it's a great example of like evolution experimenting maybe, and it like raises some really interesting questions about like what makes us unique and again, why we're still here. Yeah. And that, that question is also very much at the forefront of the Hobbit research in part because the cave we're digging at does preserve about 200,000 years continuously. And for the first about 150,000 years of that, so the lower levels of the cave, we see um, evidence that hobbits were there. And then there seems to have been like a major volcanic eruption and all of a sudden you see a turnover. And we think this is about 50,000 years ago or so. And hobbits leave the cave, as far as we can tell, and homo sapiens move in. And then we have evidence of them there for the last 50,000 years. And so even at this one site, we have, you know, these questions of why did these guys disappear? And also, you know, at the same time that Homo sapiens came about. And so it comes back to that question of like, are we, you know, what are we doing to the environment around us? And I should yeah. also say that all the other megafauna seems to have disappeared as well. And it is yeah. only one site. It's possible that they moved elsewhere, that they moved out to the coast or something like this. And so we need more sites for sure. But we, after that turnover and we see those first Homo sapiens, we no longer see any pygmy elephants. Like 90% of the giant rat species are gone. The Komodo dragons are gone. Most, we had like giant storks that are a couple meter tall. So those are gone. And so you see this big faunal turnover and there are some questions about like, is this human caused and what can we learn from that? Yeah, oh, that, is, that is so cool just to think about. It's, it's another thing that I kind of uh, think about when looking at these, especially when you start talking about how, you know, some of these other hominid species were contemporary with modern humans. And, you know, I always wonder, what you know what were they thinking did they ever actually cross paths and what did you know what did we what did we think of the of you know the hobbits or what do we think of neanderthals or what do we think yeah. of, of any of it and it's just yeah. you know yeah. because you know as, as humans today we recognize differences between people um you know just simply based on skin color or ethnic background or accent or anything like that you know to see a completely different human-like creature yeah it just yeah. it just it boggles my mind <laughs> I know and I and I have fun with that because at the site um when we're you know digging there for months on end obviously there's a lot of downtime and yeah. or time where we're sort of running data or waiting for something and I can get some of the major scientists on the team to talk about that what they think may have happened when these two species met each other and then <laughs> other scientists just are not interested in that discussion <laughs> because they're scientists and it's, yeah. you know, uh, it's like, but it's really fun to see who's interested in having that discussion and yeah. who's interested in thinking about it. And it's really fascinating. And, you know, it goes back and it's, again, it's, it's part of what's so interesting is that we are asking a lot of the same questions about these creatures that we have asked about Neanderthals and continue to ask. Mm -hmm. And with Neanderthals, we have more evidence. Like we know that we interbred, but we don't, yet know the nature of those interbreeding events, right? We yeah. don't know if it was violent, we don't know if it was like they recognized love, like what, you know, like yeah. we have no idea. 
And so one of the main things, of course, that we would love to get at the for our census site, at the Hobbit site, is DNA um, to, to see if there was any interbreeding events with humans as well, because that would be really interesting. And that, that would tell us, yeah, did they meet face-to-face? -face? And if they did, did they interbreed? And that almost seems a little wilder than you would imagine with Neanderthals, because again, they were a meter tall. So yeah really really would have looked like a different creature i would imagine but. yeah no it's 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 those kind of questions that i just absolutely love to think about yeah. you know i think yeah. that's that's really what archaeology history anthropology what all these things are really about is you know you just want to ask these questions you want to find out more yeah about it every now and then on twitter i'll ask sort of like a base question to everyone like i think we've all thought about this if you had a time machine, where would you want to go back to? Yeah. So we could actually see what was going on. Because I don't know if we'll ever really know yeah. what was going on at any given moment or how complex it was. But so but it would be nice if we could like see it from a bird's eye view, use the time machine, get dropped in the middle or whatever it is. Um and it turns out like, yeah, a lot of us have thought about this and we have yeah. sort of ranked places in time that we would like to see. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. We actually, my uh, my sister and my dad, we were having that same conversation just the other day as we were, you know, talking about, uh, so we're big fans of Doctor Who, so we always phrase it as, you know, oh, if only we had a TARDIS, and we could just, <laughs> you know, go to this certain point, and we could just take a, take a look and see what's going on. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, we would we would gain so much information so quickly yeah. that we now work so hard to get a fraction of, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, so your your thesis, you said before, is kind of uh, broken down into like three three sections. So you look at three different um, hominids. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned it was Neanderthals, so one that began with an A that I can't remember, and yeah. then the Florencius. Could you, like, what exactly is kind of the difference between these these guys? Yeah, so specifically what I'm looking at, sorry, you might be able to hear they've decided to mow the lawn outside today, but hopefully it's not <laughs> too distracting. Um, but, um, yeah, so even, what's even more fun for me about that is that not only am I trying to, like, look at these three hominins, but I'm actually looking at three specific specimens. Okay. And so what I'm doing is um, I'm trying to, as a historian, I'm trying to piece together sort of the entire history of paleoanthropology. So ask questions about how we know what we know and how that has evolved or changed or not changed over time. And so what I did was I picked three very different specimens from very different time periods located in different parts of the world. But I zeroed in on them because when they were found, they were super controversial. Yeah. And interestingly, some of the questions that people were asking about them get repeated time and time again. And so the three specimens I'm interested in is the first ever recognized Neanderthal, which was discovered in the mid-19th century in the 1850s in Germany, in the Neander Valley, it's where it's got its name. And then, I t so I look really closely at that and sort of like all the controversies that arose out of it. And then, and that was a really fascinating one and I can talk more about it. Um, at any point, but uh, that was really fascinating because it ended up getting named Homo neanderthalensis, which at the time was sort of ignored a little bit. It yeah. took a while for that to catch on, but once it did, it's sort of gone down in history as sort of the first non-human hominid, right? So that was the first, yeah. like a lot of people had proposed things like 
all sorts of different species and stuff, but none of them really stuck and none were really attached to a fossil other than other than Homo sapiens. And yeah. so it seems to me that's a really significant moment and also happens to be the first moment that you have a bunch of scientists coming together around this object and trying to say like, what is this? What does it tell us about our, it's our past? You know, and it was happening around the time that Darwin was publishing and all these really interesting moments in science were happening. Yeah. So I looked really closely at that one. And um, of course, I, the reason I've been to Galway is because um, it was William King that made that declaration in 1963, published in 1964, who was at NUI Galway. And so, (laughs) yeah, so he's really, I mean, kind of a founding father, right? He's a really interesting character. And he was in the middle of all these debates. You had a bunch of London scientists trying to say that this fossil was human. And, you know, it it had a human-sized brain, but it was just shaped a little bit differently. And it was big ridges but that was no problem it was it was human and then you had other people saying like yeah it's human but it's not even interesting because it's just a sickly individual like it's yeah. some, you know and you had all these crazy theories and then you had William King enter the debate and say no this is definitely something else entirely and again like from what I can see in the, his- in the history of science yeah he a lot of people really didn't buy that and it really wasn't until you know, so that was in the 1860s, and it really wasn't until about like 1914 or something that that caught on, and Homo neanderthalensis really became like a species name that he had, you know, declared many, yeah. many years earlier. So, so, um, so he's fascinating for that reason, and he did a lot of other things as well. And he was, you know, he was a paleontologist slash geologist. I mean, it was sort of interesting that he was even speaking about human fossils, but at the same time, no field existed to speak about human fossils right so like yeah whose authority is this is it you had medicine men jumping in you had anatomists you had sort of like all these different people making claims so so that's my first fossil and then my second one some people know it as the tong child um that was found about three quarters of three quarters of a century later in south africa so at that point you've got a very different moment in history um you've got sort of the like prime era of empire you've got these european scientists setting up uh universities in south africa and they're also out there looking for fossils and lo and behold they find one and that's a really fascinating fossil because it was right at the moment where they were trying to figure out where humans had come from yeah a lot of people were looking at asia and then this fossil shows up in africa and the man that studied it raymond dart made all these claims about how it was proof that humans evolved in Africa and Darwin had been right the whole time because Darwin had been saying Africa since the 1870s uh, and he was really a lone voice. And yeah, so that was an equally controversial fossil. Uh, It took decades for that controversy to get sort of resolved. Um, And and this is the Australopithecus. Yeah, yeah. So So again, if what's interesting about that is if the Neanderthal was sort of the first species outside of Homo sapiens to be sort of named and accepted, Australopithecus was the first genus, right? So, so at that point, by this time in the 1920s, you had uh, people that accepted that Neanderthals lived at some point, but they definitely weren't like our ancestors or anything like that because they looked very similar to us, but they, you know, were maybe some kind of cousin species or something like this. And so they knew that there were fossil hominins out there, but they didn't have anything that was really primitive, that really like could tell us a little bit more about like where we came from and how we came to acquire all these traits that we see as unique. 
our ability to walk on two legs, our big brains, things like this. And they didn't even agree on like what that would look like, right? Like what that <laughs> primitive fossil would look like. Some of them thought that it, this creature would have developed a big brain, but not other human-like features. Like maybe yeah. the ability to walk on two legs came later and then some had that reversed. And so it was really this big controversy. And when they found the, this fossil, uh, they ended up naming it Australopithecus africanus. And so that basically means the southern ape from Africa. Yeah. And um, they put it forward as a human ancestor, which is still debatable, right? We know it's a hominid. We know it's a human relative. We don't know if we're direct descendants from it. Yeah. Um, or any other Australopith. But then that, that sort of created this new genus that was, you know, a step much more primitive than anything you would see in Homo. Um, and then that genus has exploded ever since. And so we now have all sorts of species within Australopithecus. We have Afarensis in East Africa, which is the Lucy species. Um, and then we have a bunch of other, you know, sort of variations, both in South and East Africa. Um, and that's become really an important human ancestor to like help us understand a little bit more about uh, sort of these earlier steps in our evolution. So that's a fascinating fossil. And again, the the controversies were severe. I mean, yeah, I'm reading- I can some, imagine. It was crazy. I'm reading some papers, you know, letters back and forth to scientists in the 1920s. And, you know, they're long gone and I'm just sitting in their archives and I'm actually squirming. I'm uncomfortable because they're really <laughs> mean to each other and they're angry and, you know, all these things. And so um, it turns out I don't like controversy that much, which is strange because that's yeah. presentations about, but I have found that out over the last eight years. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that was quite, um, that was quite controversial. And what's cool about it is that it has now been sort of cemented as such an important fossil you know, even if it's not a direct ancestor, or whether it is or not, it's, it definitely tells us a lot of information. And so the original scientist was right in a lot of ways, in the same way yeah. that King appears to have won, right, with his yeah. declaration of, so it's kind of interesting, and it's often held up as like, you know, this example of a scientist having a ton of forethought and really fighting for his fossil and things like that. Um, and then Three quarters of a century later is when I switch over to the original type specimen of Homo crescensis, which is LB1, and yeah. that was found in 2003. So again, what I try to do in my dissertation is like take these three fossils that are all quite different and today are seen to sit in different places in the human family tree and sort of compare and contrast their stories. And there's really interesting threads, honestly. I mean, you have some of the same diseases are being put forward as an explanation for some of these fossils 150 years apart right wow yeah so with the original neanderthal some people thought that maybe the skull was shaped weird because it was that of an idiot and they called it a microcephalic which just means sort of small-headed and is this like yeah. idiocy disorder as they saw it um and you see that same argument coming back in the early 2000s with lb1 and so it's really interesting to sort of compare those examples and ask like how far have we come in our understandings of these fossils and the ways that they sort of pop up and surprise us and cause debate but sometimes the debates can look a little bit similar some yeah that's interesting how you know s stuff that because I remember looking through some of these articles where you know they're describing the the Neanderthal man as just being a diseased idiot who died in a cave yeah. and 
um, some of those same arguments, you know, finally when people move on, they're like, okay, no, that's not it. Neanderthals are actually, you know, their own species or whatever. And then decades and decades later, we're looking at a completely different one. And then the same argument comes into play. Okay, maybe this is the diseased idiot who died in a cave. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. And, you know, like it raises some really interesting questions about how science, you know, advances. So for example, like how do these controversies get solved, right? In the case of the Neanderthal, it ended up taking a lot of Neanderthals had to be found. And yeah. people had to say like, okay, these are all the same thing. And they're found from Germany to France to Gibraltar. And so they like, they had a range, they all look similar in some really interesting ways. And so we have to then deal, okay, we can like leave out that hypothesis, but then we have to deal with the other hypotheses of like, are they human or not? And yeah. so, um, so you eventually see some of these controversies get settled, but you know, the question is like, what, what's going on there? Is it, does it always take more fossils to settle them? Or are these like theoretical debates or do they revolve around our understandings of evolution or what's really going on? So those are the types of things I'm interested in. Looking yeah, at. yeah no, that's, that is, it is really neat, especially, um, you know, I guess back when Neanderthals were being discovered, um, you know, this is well before anything like DNA studies, you know, because I'd imagine, you know, if they had taken DNA of the first Neanderthal and looked at it and like maybe compared it to human and gone, okay, these are different. Mm -hmm. And that might have solved it faster um, although I'm sure there still would have been plenty of people who would have stuck to the guns and been like, no, it really is that idiot. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, it is interesting to see the debates kind of evolve and change and how we come to our different conclusions. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, but I mean, you know, you can also see sometimes the debates sort of circle back, right? Mm -hmm. Or they, or they like swing like a pendulum. And I actually have an article coming out about our perception of Neanderthals in the next month or so that, argues that exactly that we're that like maybe one of the points i'm trying to make and i try to make it in that burial piece as well is like maybe one of the things we need to ask ourselves be really reflective and it's so easy to look back on early scientists and say they were wrong and now we're right but as a historian and philosopher of science i want us to really ask like has the pendulum just swung and our perception is different and you know how do we know that we're right now like yeah. we have more evidence we we've had more time to deal with the evidence we have more sophisticated methods we have more scientists working in the field than ever before but let's be careful about you know like assuming that what we know now is is the question and the neanderthals are a great example because one of the things that happened with the DNA is eventually when we found out there was introgression of Homo sapien DNA multiple times over the course of Homo sapiens encountering Neanderthals, it, it did show that they were definitely, they had split off as different species, but then there were these events of them interbreeding. And yeah. so then actually when I was in Galway for a wonderful symposium on, um, on William King and Homo neanderthalensis a number of years ago, the question came up, so based on the biological species concept, which argues that, you know, species are, cannot interbreed, what are we to make of this fact that it does appear that Homo sapiens and Neanderthals could successfully interbreed? And does that mean that we have to then reincorporate them into Homo sapiens and call them Homo sapiens Neanderthalensis rather than, and so it's really interesting because from my perspective, debates almost look 
the same as they did in the 1860s. And yeah. of course, the evidence is very different, but the, the major question is still there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, of course, there's all these interesting facets of it. Like, it seems like those individuals were kind of selected against. And so, so most people at, at that moment, and I think still today, would say that, no, we're going to hold on to homo neanderthalensis and we're comfortable with that. But yeah, species are messy and this whole picture is really messy and it's really complicated. And, you know, there's no like hard and nature's not interested in our categories and our yeah. hard and fast rules. Not at all. Especially <laughs> when we start talking, like some of these really, really old <clears throat> remains like uh, Lucy is 3.2 million years old and it sounds impressive that I can just pull it off the top of my head but I'm looking yes. at it on screen so um, that, that wasn't just memory that's just me reading off but you know 3.2 million years old it's yeah. for one thing it's amazing that any part of her survived this long and then on top of that it's amazing that we're able to glean any kind of information from something that old and I get you know the farther back you get into into time the harder and harder it gets to actually get any conclusive evidence or results for anything yeah yeah absolutely i agree i i that, and that's part of why these fossils fascinate me so much and why i'm asking questions about how we ask questions about them and how we can learn anything at all i mean it, it really is amazing the 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 mission to find them sometimes that happens accidentally but often now it's very deliberate that in and of itself is not easy people spend their entire careers looking for the next lucy or even yeah. a fragment of a jawbone we'd be happy with you know yeah <laughs> um, i mean homo fresiensis is a great example that the main discovery was made in 2003 and there's this wonderfully complete skull and associated jaw and a partial skeleton and uh, that's the only skull to this day. So we've been there since 2003. I obviously joined much later. And um, we still only have that one skull. So we, you know, we, like you're, you're kind of fighting over scraps. And then once you have the scraps, you know, like we always say, they don't come out of the ground with like a name tag on them that tells yeah. you like their species or their significance or any of these things. And it's really difficult, I would argue, to figure that out. And that is probably one of the sort of underlying messages of my dissertation is that, again, if we're looking at paleoanthropology in the context of the history of science, it's a very difficult science because yeah. you have sort of scraps of information that are very ancient and they're smaller scraps than you might have in other disciplines. For example, yeah. dinosaur paleontology. I mean, there are dinosaur species from 70 million years ago that they have so many pieces of. And I'm sure they always want more, but yeah. sometimes when you're like comparing the fossil record to, of hominins to dinosaurs, you're like, what? <laughs> um, but it, you know, it's luck, it's preservation, it's where we're looking, it's all of these things. And so, yeah, I think it's really tricky. And I also have to say, I met Lucy once. Um, my advisors of that started the Institute of Human Origins. They, um, they were the original discovery team of Lucy and have done a lot of her analyses. And uh, she was on tour a number of years ago in the United States. And um, to see something that's 3.2 million years old that is potentially an ancestor or again, a close relative, it's unbelievable. It's just that, wild. Wow, yeah. that would be really cool. I would love to see Lucy in person. I've just, you know, just seen pictures or I've read stuff about her, but, you know, to see something like that, again, something that could be an ancestor or even, you know, a great, somewhat great distant cousin. Yeah. Um, would yeah. just be so cool because it's a, it's a piece of human history. 
Yeah, I have to say it's powerful. Yeah, I brought my twin sister along to see Lucy. She was on display in New York City and uh, for a very short amount of time. And my sister could not care less about hominins, probably was sick of me talking about them. <laughs> Even she was really affected. And actually it's changed sort of her tolerance of, you know, why she, like how much she's willing to hear about it now. Yeah. And it's the same, I mean, South Africa also has a ton of really old fossil hominins. Uh, they have this amazing hominin vault that it's just sort of will change your life if you get to mm -hmm. go in, you know, it's just, you're surrounded by them. And they actually just sent, again, I'm based in the US, um, and they just sent two amazing discoveries, um, part of a Naledi specimen and then part of a, a Sediba specimen. And Sediba is that same genus, Australopithecus. Um, but these were probably, especially the Sediba is probably about 2 million years old. So that same sort of time period, uh, more or less. And they sent them to the United States, which is the first time that South Africa had ever sent uh, wow. human to, of that age to the United States. And they were on display in Dallas um, at this museum and they worked, they worked really hard. I mean, that's really stressful to put, to like transport those fossils and put them yeah. on a plane. And I mean, it's just unbelievable how much work goes into it. But the argument was that seeing them in person is worthwhile in a, in a way that casts sometimes can't do that. But I mean, it's all just a reminder that these are really emotional things to us, right? They are, they tell us something about our history and we care about them in a way that unfortunately I will never care about a rat fossil. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's much harder to try to, to form that connection with a rat skull other than, you know, oh, it's kind of neat, but it's something else entirely. Yeah. It, there's something yeah. so much more personal about looking at a, you know, a skull of some ancient hominid and you can just look at it and you can see similarities between it and yourself or human skulls and then you just think you know what's the connection you know how am yeah. I connected to this piece yeah 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 I think it's fascinating and again like one of the interesting questions in the history of science has been is it even possible to look at something like that and to identify with that face I mean for me it's very much about faces like you mm -hmm. you can just see in those eye sockets. So, I mean, it's just crazy to see when it's a complete specimen, you feel that sort of ounce of humanity. And one of the questions has been like, well, is it even possible to study these things objectively, right? Are we, the phrase has been like, are we standing too close to our family tree to be able yeah. to see it clearly? Is it like obstructing our judgment in any way? Um, and that's sort of been a debate on and off. And again, in my dissertation, I argue that no, of course we, these are why we have scientific methods is to try to make it as objective as possible, but it's, you, I don't think you could ever get a hundred percent there, but I would make that argument about any science, you know, we're sort yeah. of doing the best we can to see things through our own lens, but this happens to be something that really matters through our lens. Yeah, no, I know we've talked about this in some of our archaeology classes, uh, you know, especially when we're trying to interpret findings or anything like that. And our professors have always warned us, you know, to, to keep in mind that no matter how hard we try to stay unbiased, we always carry some of that baggage with us. And we're always going to look at it through a particular lens that was formed by our own upbringing, our own background. And, but that shouldn't stop us from trying to make those conclusions or trying to do that study because yeah. it, I think especially for something like trying to study the the development of humans 
um, we can't just ignore it. We can't just not study it. It's our own past. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's hugely important. I'm glad that that's sort of being underlined in classrooms because, you know, as, again, as historians and philosophers of science, that's just our bottom line. You know, that no science can be done. Science is done by humans, and humans are located in particular places and moments in time, and they see the world in particular ways, and that will affect even the questions, of the way that they're framing the question, which then affects the outcome of whatever they're looking at. But I think that's so important because, you know, again, I spend a lot of time with scientists, and one of the main things I, you know, try to get across is that that's not a bad thing, right? We are doing the best with what we have. I'm yeah. really with what we're doing at any given moment and how that's changed over the course of paleoanthropology. And to say that we're sort of biased, I'm not trying to, you know, like undermine the science in any way. I just think that not admitting it is more of a problem than admitting it. So yeah. that's why I'm really glad that it's being said. And again, that a lot of like my paper that's coming out this month um, argues that explicitly that like if we you know, if we try to sweep some of these biases under the rug or we don't acknowledge them, we don't put them on the table, we got to put everything out on the table. Like, yep. here's how I came to this research question. Here's like my educational background. Those all have to be on the table. Otherwise, really important things can get lost and it can lead us down the wrong path. Sometimes it can accidentally lead us down the right path. And again, that's important. Like biases aren't always bad. Biases are not a way to explain like the things we've gone wrong, but in fact, they just exist always in everything we do. And I think the more we can acknowledge them, the more we can use them to recognize how they shape our thinking and then move forward from there. Yeah, no, that's a, you know, it's a very good point. And that's, that was one thing that I liked to hear in my classes was just, you know, we have to acknowledge uh, where we're coming from when we're trying to do this research. And it's not that, it invalidates the research or the conclusions that we make. It just, you know, it helps to put it into context for kind of how we came to the conclusion that we came to. Now, I'm sure like through your research, um, you know, cause you're studying the history of this, um, you can kind of see the, the different biases that some of the older uh, scientists had and have uh, just kind of out of curiosity, um, have you seen maybe in the past they were more or less aware of their own biases or were they just kind of um, like what was their, what, how did they handle that kind of thing? Was it, were they as aware of it as we are today? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And that's something I should definitely make note to explicitly talk about my dissertation because it's, what's tricky about history is the farther you are from an event, the easier it is to identify that bias, right? Yeah. So it's really easy for me to read some stuff that Darwin was doing or others were doing in the 1850s and just laugh because <laughs> I mean, there's tons that they did that was amazing. And Darwin yeah. was I mean, you read some of his stuff and you're like, wow, like, I don't know how you knew that. And we still think you're right today. Yeah. You know, there's other stuff that you're like, oh my God, like, <laughs> you know, how did you, but so, it, so it is really easy to identify those things. But yeah, the question is, were they identifying it in themselves? And then again, because I'm interested in my history being useful, one of the things I'm always asking is like, okay, based on our judgments of what Huxley and Darwin and all these interesting scientists were doing, 
can we learn to better identify our own biases? And it turns out like that is going to be hard. It just, yeah. it's going to be harder when it's more in the present. But to your question, I think my answer would probably be that no, they didn't really realize it. They didn't realize sort of how their worldview was influencing their science. And I think what's happened since then is we have seen time and time again, like, so paleoanthropology is fascinating because it is in a sense a historical discipline, right? Like if you wanna be a great paleoanthropologist today, you have to know a little bit about when the Tong child was discovered in 1924, under what yeah. conditions it was discovered. I mean, that's not necessarily true of physics. In physics, you can replicate experiments. You don't have to know your history. Yeah. In paleoanthropology, you kind of do because you kind of need to know like when these fossils were found and all these, you know, you kind of like need to know how the knowledge has accumulated in a way that I think in other fields you don't necessarily. So I think what's happened there is that we have become more, paleoanthropologists have become more aware of their history than, for example, physics. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's really interesting because it forces them to then grapple with seeing these biases and things and, and trying to identify that in their own work. Now, are we good at doing that in 2020? <laughs> I would say often we are not. But again, yeah. what I'm trying to do here as a historian <laughs> philosopher is to like step back. And so I'll sometimes hold, you know, like an international symposium, invite a bunch of scientists and then put them in a room with historians and philosophers and say like, are we able to take a step back and look at our own biases? And it's hard, even if we're aware that we should, which we are now, I would say in 2020, we are. And in the 1850s, they were not. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and I mean, so, so my question, so my answer would be that, yeah, I think that's changed dramatically. And it's really amazing to see. And almost sometimes it's frustrating as a historian and philosopher of science, because I want to contribute to the field. And I want to say like, hey, let's put everything out on the table. Let's talk about, you know, the types of biases we might have. But a lot of them have already done this, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like some of the leaders in the field, you know, they really are familiar with this process. And so I'm like, oh, well, Oh, I'm not contributing as much as yeah. I had hoped. You know, maybe if I was in physics, I could be have more of an impact. But so you do see that. Um, I'm interested to see how much that's changing, like based on you know the science is accelerating so fast that mm -hmm. I'm interested to see how that changes over the next couple of decades. So, for example, a lot of my advisors and some of the people that I've been working with that are have been in this discipline since the '60s or '70s. Um, in the 60s and 70s there were not a lot of papers on hominin fossils so you were familiar okay. with all of them yeah you, know? you engaged with all of them you discussed them in your you know cohort in your graduate school you did all those things now i mean i can't even tell you when i'm looking at like everything that was said about the tong child in 1925 for example and everything that was said about lb1 in 2003 the 2003 is exhausting. Well, 2004, I guess. Um, yeah. It's exhausting. I mean, there's just so much material. <laughs> and that's just with one fossil, right? So you're yeah. no longer familiar. The science is proliferating in such a way you're not familiar anymore with, um, with everything and certainly not the history of everything, right? Like if I was, let's say if I was interested in the Tong child, not in a historical sense, by no means would I ever now go back and read the original 1925 paper, right? Like, yeah. unless I really needed something from it, which I probably didn't because he spent most of the time talking about like how Darwin was right or like how <laughs> angry apes were running around Africa. Like it was really abstract. <laughs> he, he was a little bit of an abstract dude. There was definitely yeah. some really good measurements and comparisons in there, but I would say they're much fewer and far between than you would see in the paper now. So anyway, like the science definitely is changing. 
Um, and, and, it's, and the amount of data that's out there, I think, will change the way that we engage with the development of our field. Um, and then the only other thing that I would say in regards to that is, of course, unfortunately, this is a science that has been steeped in questions of human race. Yep. And, um, and that's hard to read. Uh, a lot of that early 1850s, 1860s, that's a lot of it's about race. And some of the assumptions that they're making, we now know are completely false. And yeah. we would never make some assumptions. So for example, the Neanderthal is often compared to you know, an Australian that's perceived to be a lower type of human that is perceived to be less intelligent, that doesn't have the ability to, you know, have the same culture as a European or something like this. And so you, again, looking back on that, it's very obvious that these were racial issues overlying the science that Neanderthal yeah. got caught up in. And there are all these assumptions being made. Um, and you know as a historian that that goes far beyond race and was also tied into issues of empire right so if you're saying yeah. the australians are lower than you you're also saying that you can come take over their country and push them out of it or maybe have them go extinct which they did talk about often and that was okay because you had sort of or, you know so so there are all these like political economic social underlying it's not just that they're looking at someone different saying you're different they're saying you're lesser than and therefore i have sort of rights and so it's been interesting to see that change over the course of yeah. anthropology and especially you see it after world war ii no longer all of a sudden you know because of all the horrors of world war ii all of a sudden the science changed completely and it was very much agreed upon in the scientific community that humans are innately equal, that we are all one species, that we all have the same capacities intellectually, culturally, um, physically, and therefore, you know, so that's, so that's really an interesting one to watch sort of shift over time. Yeah. And, and I think because it has such dramatic consequences, uh, I think that's probably the main one that paleoanthropologists are aware of today, right? So they're aware that they're the history of their field helped justify some really terrible horrors and they definitely don't want to go down that road again and so that's really always interesting to engage with um and see what we can do about educating the public on that yeah, as well that that's interesting to hear about that happening in like paleoanthropology because i'm just remembering so we took there's a class or two that we take in our archaeology course that talks about the history of archaeology and archaeology has gone through a very similar history in that um, well, for one thing, you know, it got started with the antiquarians who tended to be upper class uh, white British right. gentlemen who kind of came in, collected a bunch of stuff and then just left because they wanted to fill their shelves with pretty items. And then um, archaeology also unfortunately got used to um, for political means for that kind of to support imperialistic agendas and I'm, I'm sure you've, you've probably heard of Gordon Child and yep. his yeah we talked about him as well and some others who the whole the whole idea about you know there are certain levels of civilization that are just lower and therefore because we're of a higher civilization it's our right to then go and take over the lower one because we want to bring civilization to them and right it's, right it's always it, you know reading reading that kind of stuff from a modern perspective it always just it just makes me cringe because i'm just looking at this and i'm like oh my gosh i can't believe 
yeah we, we believed this and we thought about this and um yeah. and you know it actually goes back i think to the point you were making a little bit earlier which is one of the interesting things about bias is that like yeah we do have to put it out on the table and see where it's gone too far maybe and where we can correct for it and the best way to do that is through a diversity of backgrounds and a, a diversity yeah. of opinions and that's something that the field has lacked until very recently and then, and there's still of course so much work to be done and there's so many reasons to make the field more diverse and to try to correct for this imperialistic history but you know, if you want to like boil it down to the most, you know, like just try to convince anyone why we need a more diverse field, that is one of the basic arguments is that, you know, again, we're approaching with what we know, we're approaching these materials with what we know. And if we combine a bunch of people from a bunch of different backgrounds, then that can help us question our own biases and maybe cancel some of them out in a way that is so helpful. Um, and of course, it's not only the right thing to do, but I mean, it, it might also get us closer to like, you know, a more objective knowledge of what's going on. And it would have been so helpful back then, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it just, it just reminds me of, there was, there was this one article I had read a couple of years ago for an essay. I can't remember exactly what it was about now, but there was one thing that had stood out to me was that they had come across this, uh, this tool, it was like just some kind of wooden handle for something, and they couldn't, the archaeologists for the life of them could not figure out what it was, because they're just looking at it, they're just like, this is, it's, it's obviously a tool of some sort, because it's been worked, and we can, we can see that it's been shaped, it's not just a random stick, but they couldn't figure out what it was, and then they happened to show it to this, uh, this lady who'd been practicing um, some kind of yarn craft, her entire life and so was very familiar with like kind of the traditional weaving um oh gosh what's it called when you're made yeah spinning that's it and spinning like that kind of stuff she took one look at the the tool and went oh yeah you know that's what it's, it's a spindle or something you know and she immediately identified what it was and um the author of the article had used that as kind of an example to argue you know this is why we need to have more like a more diverse range of people involved with this with different backgrounds with different areas of expertise yeah. because we wouldn't be able to come to that conclusion without this you know this this random craftswoman <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely and so yeah we need to make it sort of more accessible to all you know we can't like narrow it it can't be just the scientists that are from this like one institution or whatever yeah exactly yeah. such a good example and i saw you know this is like a little bit more especially in indonesia we're very concerned with like post-colonial science like yeah because the sort of pathways through which science proceeded are so entrenched that now doing the work to overcome them is actually a lot of work and the indonesian scientists are doing a lot of that work um, where i'm located but you know it, it takes a lot of like okay how do we sort of dismantle the system and like build it back up so like on the professional level it's really tricky um, and then you have like all these assumptions that go into it but i saw a tweet that was way out of my field um, and I'm sure it was a joke but it's a great example of it um, and it was about like Mayan archaeology it was something someone said you know it took archaeologists a hundred years to figure out what X was for and someone <laughs> retweeted it and commented yeah and they it took them 80 years to ask the Mayans that were standing there you know, <laughs> like, 
And so, yeah, but like, it's a great point, right? Like they were just seen as like, you know, knowledge was something that happened in European universities and not, yeah. you know, and so, yeah, like you do, you just get these like basic things that are like, like, oh my gosh, can we please correct for this? And again, going back to the rats too, that's one of the things we are working really hard to do on this specific research question, which is the, the research question is like, did hobbits eat the giant rats and were they getting enough nutrition out of that? And essentially the bigger question is, can you get enough nutrition out of small game and is it worth hunting small game rather than going after mammoths and all these things, which of course yeah. didn't exist on this island, but it's a broader question in human evolution. Like, are we, are we making assumptions about early humans and the mammoths they took down because, because of, we see that or yeah. because we, because we assume that like they needed that much meat or, or what, like what really was going on here. And so one of the things again, that they're, that um, especially Grace Veach is doing a PhD candidate at Yale is looking at like, okay, well, who's still eating small game around the world today and how much energy are they going through to try to catch it and what can we learn from that and yeah i mean the the case on flores is an amazing case of continuity um because you you have these rat bones that may or may not have been eaten in the cave fifty thousand years ago sixty thousand years ago but you still have the rats around and you still have local villagers that are sort of hunting them um occasionally and all we have to do is ask them questions about it. And in fact, those same villagers are hired at the site as excavators. And some of them have been excavating there for 30, 40 years. And they're like wonderful sources of information. But if you don't think to ask them, then yeah. you might be like searching for this answer that is right in front of them, you know, <laughs> that they could just easily tell you. And so that's why we spent a lot of time talking to them about, um, about the rats and why they you know, when, what time of year they might go after them and whether or not, you know, it's enough to feed a couple households and that kind of thing. So, yeah, no, that's, I love hearing about those kinds of, um, I guess, experiments or projects where, you know, they, it's just so much more hands on where you actually get out and you try something like, you know, yeah. you make some rat stew or you try to recreate the tools that you are finding or you go and you talk to the people who've been living in the area and are going to know the area so much better than any archaeologist who just kind of stumbles in for yeah. a couple of days. Yeah, and it really, that whole ethno-archaeology movement, and it, and it really does, it shows you your biases really, really quickly. Yeah. So, again, <laughs> so again, that small mammal debate, I mean, one of the questions is like, do you expend more energy than you gain right yeah so if you're chasing some small mammal for meat it yeah are you gonna is a chase gonna be too much and then it's not really a good adaptive strategy to go after these things but as a bunch of westerners coming in and asking if we were to come in and ask those questions in asia and say like oh, okay well some of these small mammals might hang out in banana trees and those are really hard to climb and so it's a ton of energy lost before you get it back and then you watch one of the locals climb them to banana tree and you realize that like we have western assumptions of yeah. like our you know we use our bodies a little bit differently and yeah. we are spending much more energy to do the same task and so you have to ask like okay we need to take a step back what are our biases you know we were raised in classrooms 
Um, yeah. And no, we're never going to be as good <laughs> at climbing trees as some of these <laughs> Suddenly you realize you've been climbing trees the wrong way your entire life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It's just humbling all the time to do yeah. things there because you just look so clumsy. Like, you know, you're just like, you know, and we're as Westerners, like, you know, I'll just use myself as an example. Like, a, my body size is going to be larger than the average sort of Indonesian, and that has something to do with diet and something to do with like the way they're built and, you know, their heritage. But yeah, you know, I'm just like over here bumbling and yeah. stumbling around and like it fit me in the van versus fit three of them and you just have all these like differences and yeah. so again, it puts on the surface of like okay well if we're asking questions about the energy taken to do xyz we need to understand that we are not the only we right we are not yeah. the only humans we probably do not represent anything like an ancestor even twenty thousand years ago and so let's ask better let's look more broadly and let's yeah. see if we correct for it yeah <laughs> Oh, that's it. so. Um, you know, you said you said before that you know your your thesis should hopefully be finished up uh, relatively soon. Um, what uh, I guess what do you what do you hope that what kind of impact do you hope that your thesis will have? Um, well, that's a good question. Thank you <laughs> for asking. I um, am now in the stage where I hope no one ever reads my thesis ever. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's yeah. very normal and I'm okay with because I've been told time and time again the enemy to a dumb thesis is a is the idea of a perfect thesis which just doesn't yeah. exist um <laughs> but ultimately what's cool what I like about my thesis is um it's given rise to a ton of questions that I would like to follow forever um so there there's tons of different types of dissertations or theses um especially in history and sometimes as a historian, you might take your dissertation and then very quickly just transform it and turn it into a book and publish it and then move on. And what I like about my thesis is I'm not doing that at all. I've got these three totally different things. I don't want to mash them together ever in one place again. I'm using them as springboards to ask other questions. Yeah. So I get to sort of follow them on their own trajectory. And so hopefully that's a lifetime of work ahead of me on the history of paleontology if I can um, you know, maintain employment and do all yeah. the things <laughs> we're all trying to do post-PhD life. Um, but as far as the research questions, those are there. And uh, so, so what happens next will depend a little bit on the position I get next. But the idea is to first follow, I mean, you can tell that I'm really fascinated in this Indonesian, with this Indonesian story. Yeah. Um, it's the questions The Hobbit brings up. And um, so hopefully I'll follow that thread for a little while. Um, and I'm working on two books. One is academic and one is um, a more popular, like more of some of the stuff we've been talking about, like, or at least presented in a way that we've been talking about it today. Like, of course, there's really interesting science underlying some of these questions. But what I find really interesting about these questions are the very basic crazy things about The Hobbit, that there were giant rats and yeah. all these crazy. So I think there are some really interesting public um, appeal to the science that that should be out there, right? And so, um, so I'm working on one of those books as well that's sort of more about like my journey bumbling around Indonesia, yep. thank goodness being shown the way by some very gracious hosts. <laughs> uh, but so yeah, so I'm doing a lot of writing and trying to think about like where this heads off um, in the future. And I think you can also tell, and you know from my writing from Sapiens and from Twitter, that again, that, that public outreach aspect is something I'm really interested in. And so we'll see 
where that lands me, hopefully somewhere. Um, but I just think that human origins is such a, you know, like we've been talking about today, this is a topic that, you know, just grips us a little bit. Yeah. We look at skulls, we see this humanity. I think there's a lot of people out there that care. And some of my, you know, if I was a historian of rat bones or something, that might not be the case. And so um, I'm really excited about this stuff, as you can tell, and I like to talk about it for a public audience. And so we'll see sort of where that takes me, whether that's to a museum so I can help this stuff get more on display to a bunch of people or whether that's communicating science online or continuing to write or something like that. So we'll see where it goes. I'm, I'm pretty habit focused for the immediate future. I also had to learn Indonesian and all these other things that I'm hoping to like follow that thread because yeah. a, lot, a lot of work has already been invested. So yeah. I you gotta follow. see it through. Yeah, um, but then, you know, I mean, South Africa and East Africa are endlessly interesting to me. And so, and what's fun about paleoanthropology too is it is always evolving. Yeah. I mean, I don't envy anyone that teaches a paleoanthropology course for undergrads right now. Because <laughs> you're your syllabus mid semester, right? There's yeah. Time that comes out. And so um, that makes it really fun to be a part of, and hopefully I can contribute to that discussion a little bit by providing some context, right, to like how we've come to know this and what this new information teaches us and stuff like that. So it's a really dynamic field to be a part of, and I hope to stay in it. Yeah, no, that'd be, it'd be really neat to see how this all, all develops and just what new discoveries get to be made in the future. And yeah, you know, hopefully you get to still be a part of it and get to follow through on, yeah. on some of the threads yeah. that you're it's, am it's amazing to see sort of what's being thrown at the field right now right yeah like these techniques for searching are unprecedented right we have techniques to look underground in ways we never did we're mapping things in ways that have never been done and so there's a really systematic way of going about finding human ancestors that i think will pay off in the next decade or two very very dramatically yeah, well, that'll be, that'll, like I said, that'll be really interesting to see. And I'll definitely have to keep an eye on that and just add more tabs to the 50 I already have open. <laughs> so many tabs, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, we'll go ahead and we'll wrap it up there. Um, so I'll, I could probably keep you here for the rest <laughs> of the day and just keep talking, but just to, um, you know, keep it nice and tidy. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk and telling us all about your thesis and the research. It's been absolutely fascinating. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Those are really great questions that help me think, and I love talking about it, as you can tell. And yeah. uh, if you guys, you know, go through this in, um, as a reading group and all that, and if you have any questions, feel free to email me, feel free to tweet at me. I mean, I think you know I'm always on there, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm easy to find and I'm happy to do any follow-up. Yeah, well, when we when we get around to posting this, um, we'll definitely, we'll make sure, we'll have your, your information posted with it as well so we can direct any, any questions people might have your way. Um, right. And if you ever happen to find yourself in Galway again, you know, post-pandemic, we'd be more than happy to host you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I truly one of my favorite places in the world, so I cannot imagine too long will go by before I try <laughs> to return, so I'll be in touch. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you, thank you again. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'll talk to you soon. You have been listening to Have Travel, Will Travel a production of the National University of Ireland Galway Archaeology Society. If you get a moment, please like us on Facebook 
and follow us on Instagram and your favorite podcast supplier. Thank you for listening.